Well, good morning, Outlook family. It's good to see everyone this morning. Before I jump into the sermon, I do have some family news to share. Um, Longtime Outlooker Jim Sylvie uh, passed away Friday afternoon. Um, I had the privilege of being at the Sylvie house Friday morning and at Jim's bedside and praying with him. He was surrounded by family and then got the call a few hours later that Jim had passed. So I'm just asking us all, and we're going to pray here in just a second, to keep Barb, his wife, uh, in our prayers as well as their whole family. They are just precious people. Uh, Jim was someone that uh, I just admired and really grew to love over my years here at Outlook so far. And he's going to be sorely missed. He's just a, he was just a really, really great guy. And so I uh, just want to let everyone know that news about the Sylvie family. I don't have any details yet as far as arrangements. I know that they'll be making those calls and make, having those meetings probably very early this week. And if you're interested in learning more, we'll be putting the word out. And also you can call the church later this week, and I'm sure we'll have the information. But if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to lift up our brothers and sisters, the Sylvie family, uh, in prayer before we jump into God's word. So let's pray. Lord, we do uh, grieve with those who grieve. And Lord, we're just painfully aware of the loss that Barb is feeling right now. And we're feeling it too. As we lose Jim and as we grieve with her, Lord, uh, we know that you grieve with us all, that you're with us in that grief. And uh, even though Jim was a stout believer in Jesus and we have plenty of hope uh, in eternal life, thanks to you, Lord, uh, we also grieve his loss from being among us. And so, Lord, I pray, we pray that you would give Barb and, and all the kids and grandkids and great-grandkids comfort uh, in this time uh, as they travel and navigate a very difficult season. We ask that you'd be with them. And be with us, Lord, as we open up your word. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks a lot for praying with me. Well, if I were to ask you, who here wants to be a generous person, my guess is nearly every hand would go up or head would nod. Being generous or more generous is something we all want. But I'm also wondering if it's something we need. We've been leaning hard in, we've been leaning in hard to hear Jesus teach us that no one can have two masters. We can't serve both God and, Jesus says, money. And he also teaches that our hearts and our treasure are connected. Where uh, one is invested, the other follows. And tucked between those two insights, Jesus says something super interesting, but easy to miss because the meaning of his words can be lost without a little background. So we're going to, I'm going to quote here from Matthew 6, again, uh, tucked between those two teachings that we've tackled so far in this series, Jesus says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, Jesus is using what we call an idiom. He's using a turn of phrase that was perfectly and immediately understood by his initial listeners, but could easily be lost on us in a different culture and in a far different time. Last year, the uh, 
uh, or in recent years, I can't remember which year it was, uh, the staff and the elders all read this book by Lois Twerberg called Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. Great book that talks about the Jewish uh, language uniquenesses or cultural uh, aspects of Jesus' ministry that when we understand them, it sheds new light on some of the things that Jesus says and does. It's a great book. And in this book, she talks about this very passage, and she talks about how we can crack this cryptic saying about the eye or eyes by hearing it in its Hebraic context and grasping the figures of speech that Jesus was employing. The Hebrew language uses I as an idiom to describe a person's whole attitude or outlook, right, or point of view or perspective. So it's a shorthand way of talking about the way a person approaches life or sees the world. Now that makes sense. We, we get that. The kind of eye you have determines the kind of person you are. Now, uh, then she goes on to say this, having a good eye, so to speak, quote unquote, is to look out for the needs of others and be generous. But to have a bad eye is to be greedy and self-centered. She goes on to observe, if you're generous then, based on what Jesus is saying here, your whole life will show it. And if you're selfish, it will infect your very soul. How great will the darkness be? So Jesus is teaching that our generosity is like a rudder steering much of our life and character. It's not a nice to have. It's not a want to be but, or a maybe someday. But it's a need for today and every day. If we look back at this same passage in a translation called the Complete Jewish Bible, a translation that takes into account some of these Jewish idioms, we read the scripture like this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if you have a good eye, that is, if you are generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if you have an evil eye, if you are stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, when we close ourselves off from generosity, we are shutting the window. We are closing ourselves off from other good and healthy things and leave ourselves in deep darkness. So generating generosity in our lives and guarding against greed, which is what we're going to talk about here in a moment, sounds pivotal to our discipleship and to our human thriving. We don't want a soul in darkness, right? Jesus teaches this is exactly the case in a parable we're going to dive into this morning. So I'm going to spend the rest of my time and our time in Luke chapter 12 as we hear Jesus tell a powerful parable that illustrates what he just taught here in Matthew 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can feel free to turn to Luke 12 or pull that up in the Bible app, or I'll have the verses up here on the screen. Luke 12, it says, starting in verse 13, (coughs) pardon me, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? In other words, Jesus is asking, why are you coming to me with this? Jesus, people came to Jesus with all kinds of requests and questions. Jesus, heal my son. Master, when will the kingdom come? Rabbi, from where did you get this authority? But this guy comes to Jesus and says, tell my brother to show me the money. Right? And he's making the wrong request. You can tell from Jesus' question back to him. It's like, what? Where are you coming from? Here. He is missing the point. 
And money does that to us. It distracts us. This guy's consumed. His, his mind is on the fact that his brother won't split the inheritance with him. For some reason, mom and dad didn't put him in the will, perhaps. And he wants to know, hey, maybe my brother should just go ahead and split the inheritance. Wouldn't that be the right thing to do, Jesus? That's funny, because I think uh, when it comes to how money can distract us, inheritance, many times more so, right? How many times have, have, have we seen uh, division happen in families, all because of what happens with an inheritance or a will or the disagreements that can come from that. It's tragic because it's really just money. And yet a lot of things can get sacrificed on the altar of that money, right? And so that seems to be what's happening here. We haven't changed that much, we human beings. He comes to Jesus with this request. Jesus sees something here and he addresses it with a warning and a story. Verse 15, he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Greed is defined as a selfish, relentless desire for more stuff or money. Other things too, of course, but we're going to see uh, that Jesus is focusing on finances here based on the context and the, on the story that he's about to tell. And Jesus sounds serious. He's moved on from this guy's request. He's now not actually addressing it directly or personally at all. Now he's turned to the crowd based on what this guy chose to bring. and says, watch out, everyone. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And Jesus sounds serious. Why would he be that serious about this? Well, let's remember what he's already taught us. Money will master our lives if we let it. And when greed seeps in, we're in the fast lane toward exactly that. And how we handle our money, we've already heard him teach us, is how we're handling our lives. So greed will turn our priorities all upside down. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed which is idolatry. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, wrote uh, that when he was preaching a series on the seven deadly sins, uh, his wife Kathy told him, I bet the week you deal with greed will have the lowest attendance. And she was right. He goes on to explain, people packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride, but nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, he says, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. He observes, grief hides itself from the victim. The money gods, modus operandi, includes blindness to your own heart. Super insightful there. This greed that we hear Keller writing about is the greed Jesus is warning us to be on guard against. Vigilantly watch out, he says, for it. Because why? Life does not consist in an abundance, he says, of possessions. But when we begin to think it does consist of, or at least not, if not an abundance of possessions, maybe just more possessions, or maybe just the next possession, right? That that's what motivates us in life. That's what excites us. An abundance of possessions 
If we look around, sometimes it feels like that's all we have to show for our lives, or at least in this world today, right? The one who dies with the most toys wins, we sometimes hear people say or put on a bumper sticker. And it's what the world has sold us as the good life. And Jesus is calling us to more than this. He's calling us to a great life. Now, we have to, if we're honest with ourselves, we might be thinking, wait a second, an abundance of possessions sounds great. You mean life is meant to be more than that? And doesn't more stuff mean more blessing? Doesn't that mean God has somehow favored me? Don't buy into that. Don't fall for that. More stuff does not mean more blessing. In fact, sometimes it buries us. Do you see how this comes up again and again? As we're moving through this series, we see that this idea of our human struggle with possessions, with stuff, with money, and how to handle it, and how it sometimes handles us, man, it always has been part of the human struggle, the human condition, and it has always affected and sometimes infected our spiritual faith. This guy approaching Jesus, imagine, coming up to Jesus, and what you want to do is try to get more money out of the conversation. Not healing, not insight, not teaching. The Son of God, someone you know is a miracle worker. Chances are all, all, uh, who he is has reached you in some way. And you bring to Jesus a question about splitting the inheritance, right? But money blinds us. This guy approaching Jesus, us navigating life, dealing with each other, even praying to God. Our stuff and all the stuff surrounding our stuff. It's a central issue for us as humans, and it always has been. And it's playing itself out right now with Jesus and this guy and the crowd around them. And so Jesus responds and says this. He tells a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, Jesus says. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, Jesus is off and running with another story. And we get no indication as he introduces the main character here that this rich man was particularly bad or evil. In fact, through the wisdom of his own planning, the diligence of his efforts, and the provision of God, he has just been blessed with an abundant harvest. So far, so good. But like the guy at the start, our man in the parable is asking the wrong question. His concern is first himself and his crops and how to store them for himself. There's something to be said for asking good and right questions and the misdirection that we experience when we ask the wrong questions. Our culture, the one who tries to sell us that good life we just described, wants to keep us asking, why don't I have more? And when I get more, how can I benefit? What will I do or buy for myself? What trip might we take or what new car might I upgrade to? But there is a deeper, more profound question Our culture and really our very human nature would rather we ignore. And that's the question, why do I already have so much? And globally speaking, compared to all the other, all our human siblings on the planet, we are the man in the parable with the bumper crop. Why us? Why me? Now, if that's an uncomfortable question, and many times it does feel pretty uncomfortable, think about this. Remember the days when you didn't have enough And maybe that's you today. We've all been there. Most of us have been there, I would have to say. When we think about days when we didn't have enough, were we hesitant to ask God about that? To question Him about our lack or to bring it before Him, to make it a topic of our prayerful conversation with Him? We let Him know that we were in need and we thanked Him when He provided. 
If we're on the other side of that equation with maybe more than we need, why don't we ask God about that as readily? Bring that before him too. Maybe you do. Maybe you absolutely do. I know I need to make sure I do. When we don't have enough, we wonder why. But how often do we wonder why when we have more than enough and what we should do with it? Maybe it's so we can do tremendous good. So a better question might be, what God, what would you have me do? And why did you give me all this? Neither of these questions seem to be coming to the mind of the man in the parable. His response reveals his heart. Verse 18, he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many, many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. We easily see here the attitude of his heart. My barns, my surplus, I say to myself. This is, of course, the language of greed. Jesus is telling us to be on guard against it. Any of us can fall into it. It's easy to fall into for any one of us. Building bigger barns for our stuff, whatever that looks like, or simply devoting so much of our thoughts and energy and time to what may someday give us the chance to have bigger and fuller barns, whatever that might be, mean for us to keep in the language of the parable. All of this is that greed of its various kinds that Jesus tells us to be on the lookout for. Whose barns do we really want to be overflowing? That's a, maybe a good question. Really, who really want to be overflowing? There's this passage in the Hebrew Scriptures by the prophet Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. It's punchy, and there's really not another passage quite like it. I referred to it briefly last week, but in light of Jesus' parable, I can't help but uh, go back there in my mind because I see some parallels there. So let's take a closer look. In Malachi chapter 3, God is speaking to his people through the prophet Malachi. And so this is God saying to his people, Should people cheat God, yet you have cheated me, he says to them. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? God's answer is, you have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. God, in this passage, he's calling out the relationship between their devotion to him and their giving of their material wealth, specifically the tithe. Now, we could talk a lot more about that than we have in the previous sermons. And so, if you haven't caught those, I'd encourage you to go back and, and, and take a deeper uh, listen into those sermons. But what we're talking about here is a tenth of one's income or increase directed by God from the beginning to be devoted to him and his work and his worship. This was a requirement of the Jewish people under their law. For us as disciples of Jesus, it's more of a biblical baseline. This idea of generosity, this idea of giving in worship and in devotion to God never goes away. And God's calling them on it. He's saying, hey, you've really neglected this. And he goes on to say this, and this is why the passage comes to mind in light of Jesus' parable. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it, he says. Put me to the test. Now, blessing in this passage is not what you might have uh, heard. Blessing does not necessarily necessarily mean more stuff. 
But like Justin prayed and, and spoke with us earlier, it means more alignment with God and life in God. That kind of windows of heaven being opened and blessing being poured out means a life that is blessed in all kinds of ways. Ways that can't be counted, not ways that aren't necessarily tangible, but a life full of God's blessing in all of its ways. Declaring him first place in our lives by readily and joyfully giving to him the first fruits of our increase. This is a pattern that God has set in place for his people since the beginning. And as Jesus is teaching us, it sets the rudder of our hearts. It fosters the good and healthy eye Jesus taught about so that the light of our soul is open to let the light in. The, the darkness within us is dispelled because we've opened ourselves up in generosity, we've opened our soul up to receive. The same valve, the same door, the same passage, the same window, the same portal by which we give is also the one in which now we're open to receive. And so that's why God, who is a giver himself, is always urging us to be generous in giving people. When you do this, God says, it will be my barn or storehouse that will be full and well supplied. And that sounds like a good thing. This seems to matter deeply to us as God's people. I'll say again something I said a couple weeks ago. I believe that local churches, when I think about God's plan through his people on the earth, I believe that local churches, the home churches of present day disciples of Jesus Christ, should be the most amazingly resourced entities around, doing amazing amounts of good, sharing uh, with anyone in need, helping people, spreading love, spreading the good news, and then that this amazing generosity and support should be astounding to the world at large as the sheer amount of ministry and compassion and assistance that flows from that church down the street becomes just undeniable in the huge difference that it's making in the community. I can't help but think that that brings God glory and that it gets people's attention and it helps them see what love really looks like in the world. And on top of that, I'll testify to this. I know that when I personally realized how beneficial steady, devoted percentage giving was to my own spiritual growth, that I took Jesus at his word, I put into practice these things we've been talking about these last few weeks, and I started practicing it. I found my discipleship deepening. It is a missing piece, I think, for many who wonder why their spiritual growth feels stunted. Opening ourselves up in that way opens ourselves up to all kinds of other good things, no matter our age or stage of life. Stretching and increasing my generosity expands my heart and my soul. And like I said, this practice never really went away. When we go into the New Testament, we read things like this. On the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money you have earned. That this act of giving has just always been a good and healthy thing for us as disciples of Jesus. And I'm just simple enough to take these directives to heart and believe Jesus knows what he's talking about. Less me, less my, less mine. It's not about me. Ministry in our home church doesn't happen without provision from God, which he's chosen to achieve through each disciple's generous, faithful, cheerful, steady giving. When we see this as the really beautiful thing that it is, we can embrace it with that kind of joy that I'm talking about here. 
Maybe sometimes we can be more like the guy in the parable than we first realize or admit. Remember, the man in the parable did not steal. He did not take. He only kept. And keeping, when we're called to share, is its own kind of stealing. He neither shared his goods nor used them for good. He robbed God and others, and in the end, himself as well. And God himself actually has words for him. Back to the parable. Jesus says that God speaks to the man and says, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? You have to imagine those last two words are just echoing. For yourself. For yourself. A rude awakening awaits us when we invest our lives selfishly in what's temporary instead of generously in what's eternal. God essentially says to him, You kept what you should have given and shared, and you've been pronounced a fool. While his financial accounts, so to speak, were overflowing, the accounts that mattered were bankrupt, and he suffers a total loss. This reminds me of these really beautiful words in Psalm 49, back in the Old Testament, talking about those who reject God. The the psalmist says this, They trust in their wealth and boast about how rich they are, Yet not one of them, though rich as kings, can ransom his own brother from the penalty of sin. For God's forgiveness does not come that way. For a soul is far too precious to be ransomed by mere earthly wealth. There is not enough of it in all the earth to buy eternal life for just one soul. In other words, what Jesus said is true. Life, real and true life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. It's tempting to think that's exactly what life, the good life, consists of. And it's easy to fall for pursuing comfort and convenience like the so-called rich fool in the parable. But we have to know better, or at least learn to know better. This world needs a people who know better. There are people in your life who need have someone who can show them a better way to get off the treadmill of chasing the good life and instead stop and rest and trust in the God who made you and knows you and loves you and enjoy a great life. Everyone tries to tell us how to get rich, but where do we learn to be rich? Those are lessons God can teach. And Jesus is doing exactly that here. He concludes, This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Remember what we've heard from Jesus. This man was the epitome of storing up treasure on earth. If if you recall, we tackled that passage a couple weeks ago. His heart was small. Ignoring God and others, his hands were closed, clasped around what he thought was only his and all his. And to return to that figure of speech Jesus used, his eye was bad, letting in very little light into his soul. He was rich by earthly measures, and it counted for nothing. He was not rich, as Jesus puts it, toward God. And friends, that's my prayer and my earnest desire for us all for you, for me, that we don't fall for all the accumulation of stuff this world calls the good life. 
that instead we hold it loosely, that we can embrace the great life of generosity and giving and care for others and devotion to our church family and love of God. Because that is where real wealth is found, where real blessing pours forth, and where greed can lose its grip on us. Amen? Let's start. Let's pray together. God, we start this prayer by asking today, what shall I do? As the man in the parable did. But unlike the man in the parable, the rich fool, asking this of himself, God, we're asking you. We're asking you, Lord. What shall I do? With all that you've given me, whether by any earthly standard, it's a lot or a little, that's not really the question. You've invested in us whatever it is that we have. Lord, what shall we do? How would you have us use and share what you've given us to those in need, to our church family, to uh, this world around us? How would you have us allocate the resources you've blessed us with in a way that will expand our own souls, let light into our own spirits? That's a question that we want to ask you, Lord, and we trust you for good answers. In Jesus' name, amen.